What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Father, it has been a wonderful conference so far, and for all of this, we give you great gratitude, and we extol your holy name, Heavenly Father. We thank you for the giftedness of the teachers and the presenters that we've already heard so far, both last evening and this morning as well. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that the church would be faithful and true to your word, despite any difficulties that may come our way in the near present or in perhaps even in the distant future, Father, as we stand upon the truths that we believe, not only in our confession, but also, and most importantly, from the Holy Scripture. So, Father, we do pray for your illumination even now as we turn to your word. I pray for your help as the preacher this morning, Lord, that you would give me great guidance and direction and protection in the pulpit. Father, may everything I say be true and right and edifying to the church. Lord, guard me from error and false teaching. I pray also for this congregation whom I love. May we have hearts that are ready to receive the word of God. May we have ears ready to hear it. May we have lives ready to, to live it, minds ready to believe it. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's grab our Bibles this morning. We are going to be looking at the book of 2 Timothy. I'd invite you to turn to 2 Timothy in your Bible. I'm going to look this morning at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. So again, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Let's go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's Word. That is one of our customs here at Gospel Fellowship. We stand for the reading of God's Word not to try to be performatively religious, but because we recognize the inerrancy, the infallibility, the inspiration of God's Word, and we receive it as such. When we hear the Word of God written, read to us, it is the same as if God were audibly speaking to us with His own voice, such is the authority of God's Holy Word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5, to listen now to the Word. Of our God. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Verse 3 For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill 
your ministry. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. There are 10,000 different ways that you can destroy your life, and only one way for your life to be redeemed, and that is through the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this conference, we've already looked at a number of ways that you can inadvertently or quite intentionally destroy your life and have it entirely ruined. We've considered, of course, the image of God, the way that humanity in our, in our body and our soul reflects our Creator, points back to Him as our our maker and our creator and our judge. And we've seen that in the first message, even though Adam and Eve fell, our foreparents, and that we are fallen with them into a state of total depravity, yet nevertheless, that image of God still persists in us. It has not been fully destroyed such that we still bear, both men and women, the image of God. And we've seen in another lecture, the law of God, which we violate at our own risk. We put ourselves in all sorts of danger whenever we decide to volitionally leave, depart from the law of God. The law of God is given to us for our own good. And so when we, when we choose to neglect God's law, it's as though we are choosing to tiptoe through the minefield. We put ourselves in grave danger when we ignore the law. And last night we looked at transgenderism, which, which can in some cases quite literally destroy the physical body through perhaps drugs on one hand or surgeries on the other hand. And we looked this morning, we heard, we heard a very grave and weighty message, a, a message of great burden to our souls, I trust, about pornography and its dangers. And it's convicting to me when even unbelievers like Joe Rogan on his podcast is now talking about the dangers of pornography addiction when an unbeliever warns us about the danger. We ought to be doubly convicted. And this morning, we looked at other ways that our lives could be destroyed, perhaps intentionally, perhaps unintentionally. We've looked at divorce recently this morning. We looked at homosexuality this morning, this deep pit which seems impossible to climb out of for those who are trapped in this lifestyle, yet saved by the grace of God, He does deliver. We trust, we believe He does deliver us from all of these things. And so there are 10,000 ways that we might possibly destroy our lives. And it's not just or merely through these things related to gender and sexuality. We chose that for our conference this weekend because this is the very fulcrum issue that our culture and society has been debating so heavily. But I just want to warn you, if none of these issues are a struggle for you, there are still 10,000 other ways that you can ruin your life besides through these means. We could talk about sloth, which is destruction by inertia. We could have a conference about that. We could talk about gambling, which is destruction through greed. We could talk about arrogance, which is destruction through pride. We could talk about blasphemy. We could have a whole conference on that, which is destruction of the life and the soul by irreligion. Hear me, and please listen, there are 10,000 different ways that you could ruin your entire life. It might happen in a day, it might happen over a long sequence of events, but there is only one way to have your life reclaimed and restored and redeemed, and that is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, through his blood and through his cross. And so we want to at least end this morning's portion with a message on preaching the gospel in this culture of chaos. Christ is the message that we have to bear to this chaotic culture. That's what we have. We have Christ, the elect redeemer. We have Christ born incarnate. We have Christ 
perfect. We have Christ crucified. We have Christ raised from the dead. We have Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. We have Christ ruling and reigning over all that was and is and is to come even now. We have Christ ready to come to return to judge the living and the dead. This is the one moment, the one word. This is the one message, the only hope that we can offer to this chaotic distorted and confused society in which we live. We have and we offer to the world Christ. And we've seen the chaos. We've seen now drag queen story hour over and over again. If it would only happened once, it would still be shocking. But it's not once. Now it seems like it's every month. Now it seems like it's every week. It's in a different town here. It's in another city here. We have drag queen story hour, and it's happening on our watch. We have the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, who is sitting for an interview with a grown man who is dressed as a girl and describes himself as a glittery girl with his prom queen hair. And we're expected to accept this as normal. We have hospitals, major United States hospitals, first announcing and then denying and then later defending surgeries to physically alter the anatomical structure of our children's body, our children who are still a half-life away from even being able to vote. And the chaos is everywhere. Sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's not. Apple adds a pregnant man emoji to their emojis, which you can now tag on to your text messages. Disney announces that they want to, quote, queer up all of their programming for their children. The Babylon Bee, which is a comedy website, it's a satire website, was, and as far as I know, still banished from Twitter for the crime of misgendering somebody. Uh, the NCAA female women's swimming champion, as we all know, is born biologically a male, and nobody seems to be able to define what a woman is unless you are a biologist. This is the chaos of the world that we live in today. And yet I ask you this simple question, is it so different from the day that Paul lived in? Is it really so terribly different? Is it, is it true that homosexuality was invented sometime in the 60s, maybe at Woodstock? No. The perversions that we used to call pedophilia, but now we're told we are to call minor attracted persons according to the 11th edition of the Newspeak Dictionary. That's a reference to 1984, if you don't know. Was that sin invented before or was it invented after the internet? I ask you this question. Was the world, was this nation basically chaste and pure until 2015 when the Obergefell decision became the law of the land? To all of these questions we say, well, of course not. We're not fools. We know that the same sins, generally speaking, that exist today in our chaotic world were the same sins, more or less, that the Apostle Paul was preaching against in his own time, chaotic and confused as the world was and is and still will be. No doubt the internet has ramped up the speed at which all of these things come to light, and that's really the difference. As now what was done in a dark place, now, then what was done in a dark place or hidden from society, now it's been exposed by means of our high-speed internet connections, our social media feeds. We know now more about it, perhaps, for those of us uh, who are not experienced in these things or have even seen these things in our own experience. But the writer of Ecclesiastes must surely be right when he says that there is nothing new under the sun. 
And so what I'd like to do in our time remaining this morning is to draw some encouragement, to draw some courage, to draw a little bit of boldness, if we dare, from the preaching ministry of the Apostle Paul, who preached in an equally chaotic, morally, spiritually, ethically chaotic time as we now preach in today. So from this text, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5, to I want to make four observations about Paul's preaching ministry. I'll give you the points right now, and then we'll go back through all of them as we work through this text a verse at a time. First, we're going to look at the urgency of gospel preaching. Secondly, we will look at the seasons of gospel preaching. Third, we will look at the alternative to gospel preaching. And then finally, we will weigh the cost of gospel preaching in our day and in our age. So with that in mind, I hope you still have your Bible open with you as I have my Bible open right here on the pulpit with you this morning. Let me remind you of some of the context, the historical and literary context of Paul's second letter to Timothy. Now there are two letters to Timothy in your New Testament. This is the second letter, of course. This is probably Paul's last written testimony as an apostle before he dies. Paul is martyred. We think sometime around AD 64 to AD 68, but almost certainly under Nero's time as the emperor of Rome. Paul has completed now his fourth missionary journey. The book of Acts takes us through Paul's three main missionary journeys. But as we look at some of the the letters and the correspondences, it seems rather clear that Paul went on after the imprisonment that in the imprisonment that he's experiencing in Acts chapter 28 unto a second imprisonment in Rome this time we believe results in his death in fact uh, the extra biblical writer Eusebius can confirm this history for us although he's often right not always right sometimes there are things we may quibble with but nevertheless we're quite sure that this is essentially Paul's last writing, this last canonical writing at least that we're aware of. And what is Paul's personal situation in this moment? Well, if we had more time this morning, we might look at some of the ways that he describes himself here. But first of all, let me simply say to you that Paul has already been abandoned by his friends. He mentions that not once, but two or three times in this letter that he feels abandoned. In fact, look at verse 16 of our chapter this morning, 4.16. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Paul is, is clearly abrased by the fact that in his most dire moment, nobody stood up with him. Nobody showed up to be with the Apostle Paul as he's facing his trial here. We know that he believes he's about to die, He says in verse 6 that he's already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. This is very different from the way that Paul talks in Philippians where he's also in prison. Where there he has imminent hope that he's going to be released. Here he's quite sure that he's going to die. We know that Paul is cold because he asks for his cloak to be brought to him. We know that Paul is lonely because he asks that Mark would be brought to him. Perhaps he wants to amend that relationship which was broken on the first missionary journey. Paul and Mark had a falling out. Uh, We know he would love to have his parchments and his scrolls and his scriptures with him. He feels abandoned. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, Do your best to come to me, for Demas, in love with this present world, has departed. He has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Paul here feels very 
much alone of all of the creature comforts that he has left. Perhaps his only consolation in this world is that Luke, in verse 11, is with me. Praise God, he has one friend standing by. And what Paul writes to Timothy here is of such dire urgency that you can tell by the very language which Paul selects to introduce this imperative to preach the word in verse 1 that he is speaking on a most grave and serious level. The most grave level that words can be summoned to describe. Look with me at the urgency. This is point number one of the preaching ministry in verse 1. He says this, quote, I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Do you get the sense that he is utterly grave here? That he's entirely serious? Paul uses the word in Greek here, dia marturomai, and you don't need to remember that word, other than you may already know the root word right in the center, which is the word marturos, to be a martyr, to witness. Yes? And who is Paul charging to be a witness here? Well, normally that word, dia marturamai, was used in the ancient Greek culture to summon the gods of the Roman pantheon to come down and to look and to observe what is happening. But Paul doesn't believe in the other gods. He believes in the one true and living God, right? And so what Paul says here to Timothy is, I am charging, I am dia marturamaiing you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's going to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. In other words, Paul says, I am binding you by an oath, Timothy. I'm going to make you swear in the presence of God, Timothy. Timothy, I'm going to place the heaviest burden and mantle that I can summon upon your shoulders to do one thing and one thing only. And what does Paul ask Timothy to do? Keruso, preach. Preach what? Preach the Word. Now, Paul doesn't normally talk like this. This is rare. He gives imperatives all the time. In fact, there's a number of imperatives in this same chapter. Paul is asking for a few things here. But, but notice the, the asymmetry that would result if we use this sort of ramping up, as he does in verse 1, for any of the other imperatives. So for instance, Paul does not say, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God to greet Priscilla. That just, just doesn't go, right? There's just something asymmetrical about that. Only the weightiest burden and responsibility can be used with these words. He does not say, I charge you before Christ who is to judge the living and the dead to bring my cloak. Now he may be very cold and I trust he is. In fact, that's why he says, would you please come before winter? Paul is concerned that he's going to freeze. He's going to be cold. But he doesn't use this sort of in view of his appearing and his kingdom sort of language here. It's with regard to this imperative that Timothy would preach the word that he uses all kinds of, of summoning, charging, um, um, hyper-important language here to place his burden on Timothy's shoulders. He says, preach the word. Now, if somebody gets clever and says, which word? Which part of the word? Which portion of the word? Which preferred words should I preach? Well, I would simply say, all of it. 
preach the covenants, preach the laws, preach the promises, preach the prophecies, preach the commands, preach the histories, preach the poems, preach the prayers, preach the gospels, preach the epistles, preach the apocalypse, even preach the genealogies. If all I had uh, on the pulpit this morning was, a, was an ancient papyrus, and it was the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, that long genealogy that we, all, we often skip, I would still preach Christ from it. Because that's all we have. The Christ is the message of life and death. And so what we do is we bring this message of life and death to a culture that is clearly in severe danger of dying. And so we have to be ready to live and die with this one message just so that we might gather in a few souls. That's our hope. Maybe the reason that our message has been unsuccessful so lately is is that um, we have not exalted Christ to the ultimate position of supreme beauty and glory and majesty that he is truly worthy of. Because somehow there's a disconnect. I can't exactly describe what it is, but somehow there's a disconnect that the world sees these other values as higher priorities, as more beautiful, as, as, as more desirous than the exalted resurrected and glorious Christ. Maybe that's on us for not preaching it. Maybe it's, that's on them for not receiving it. But I would certainly hope that the disconnect here is that we have not failed to preach the Word of Christ from the Scriptures of God. So note first the absolute urgency of this burden that Paul places upon them. Secondly then, let's look to the seasons of preaching that Paul enumerates here in verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Be ready in season and out of season, he says. Now, I grew up in Ohio. I lived in Florida for 11 years. So I will tell you this about Florida. It's a wonderful state. They have two seasons, bug season and hurricane season, right? Here in western Pennsylvania, much more like my beloved Ohio, we have four beautiful seasons. We have a wonderful summer, a spring, a fall, a winter's coming. We all know that it's true. We love our four seasons here. Paul says, when it comes to the preaching of the Word of God, there are two seasons, in and out. This is an agricultural metaphor, and I'm going to be the first one to tell you that if everybody in this room, I am the least qualified to speak about agriculture to you because I literally have a brown thumb. I kill everything I try to grow. The best I've ever done is the wild raspberry bushes on the back of my property. I didn't plant them, but I, I take the berries when they come. I've been observing these, these bushes very carefully, these raspberry bushes. I can tell you this, this is what I know, that there are two seasons. There's berries and not berries. There's berries and there's not berries. And there is something similar to that with the preaching of the Word of God. Now, for the sake of discussion, and maybe you can offer a better de definition of what in-season means, but I'm going to take a stab at it. I'm going to try to define what in-season means, and then I'm going to try to define what out-of-season means. We can quibble about the definition here, but let me just take a go at it. I'm going to define in-season preaching as those rare times in history when the word is gladly heard 
and eagerly received and freely preached and abundantly harvested. Now all of us, we wish that our ministries would be described by such a season, yes? For those of you who preach, you want that badly, so do I. And as it turns out, that's, that's one of those things that is simply subject to the sovereignty of God. I have no idea if we'll ever have such a season of in-season ministry when the word is eagerly heard, gladly received, freely preached, and abundantly har- harvested. I don't know if that's ever going to describe your ministry. But sometimes God, in his graciousness and his mercy, he will pour out an entire in-season for the sake of his church. Let me give you one example, and of course I'm going to choose Jonathan Edwards, 1735, the Northampton revival that led up to the Greater Awakening, the Great Awakening in 1740. Edwards describes what happened in his home church in Northampton, in his his town of Northampton where he's ministering. He says this, and listen to this. Don't you want this? I want this so bad. I want this so bad. Here's what Edward says, quote, This work of God, as it was carried on, and the number of the true saints multiplied, soon made a glorious alteration in the town, so that in the spring and the summer following 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love, so full of joy, and yet so full of distress. He's talking about the distress of those who, were, who, who God was working in their hearts, right? As it was then, there were, still quoting, remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvations being brought unto them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn and husbands over their wives and wives over their husbands. The goings on of God were then seen in his sanctuary. God's day was a delight and his tabernacles were amiable. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intense on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came forth from his mouth. Pastors, can you relate to that? You want that, right? The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors, unquote. Let's just pause right there and say all of us should be praying that we would ever experience even a small season of ministry that looks like that. But the reality is, historically speaking, writ large, Those times seem to be as few as the berries season comes on my wild bushes. They are precious and they seem to be few. And that doesn't mean, though, that God isn't working. And so then, if that's what in-season looks like, and I'm not even suggesting that we'll ever see a day like that, perhaps, maybe not. But then what would out-of-season look like? Well, it would be the opposite, let's say. Again, just my definition. You can correct me later on if you want. But So out-of-season then would be something like the opposite of that. Those more common times in history when the Word of God is resistantly heard, when it is resentfully received, when it is preached through difficulty and the harvest is scant. Now that doesn't mean, let me just qualify, that doesn't mean that God isn't actively saving his elect even in out-of-season seasons. He certainly is. 
But when we look out at our culture today, when we look out at our society today, let me just ask you, which season do you think we're in? It would certainly seem, just by way of conjecture, by those definitions, that if we're not out of season already, we are certainly headed there. Again, I don't know. Now, some of you may be already letting yourself off the hook here in this message because you're saying to yourself, well, I'm not a preacher. This isn't my burden. And I will, I will acknowledge to you that there's a sense in which you may be right. Because James chapter 3, verse 1 does give us a warning about those who would teach that our judgment, preachers and teachers, will be more strict as we are held to the highest account for what we do with God's Word. Moreover, the Westminster Larger Catechism in question number 158 does restrict the certain kind of ordained preaching to those who are rightly called and installed and ordained to the office of preaching. There is that, and that is true. And I hold to that and believe that that's right. That there's a certain responsibility of preaching that becomes those who are ordained. And so for those of you who are not ordained, perhaps there is a sense in which you are off the hook. However, before you get too comfortable with being off the hook here, uh, let me just mention to you that it seems from the text, the way Paul says it here, is he's not just talking about ordained preaching. Because look at his words here. He says, preach the word, right? But also, also reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So if you're saying to yourself, well, I'm not a preacher, then I say back to you, then catechize your children. Because they're going to need it. If you say to me, I don't have a congregation, then I say back to you, but you do have neighbors. And if you say to me that you don't have a pulpit, then again I will reply, then get yourself a soapbox because they're cheap and easily accessible. But you still have a message that you must deliver to this world. You may say, I'm not articulate, I can't speak. Then again I throw it back on you and I say, then get some gospel tracts and distribute them if you can't speak. Because somehow this world needs to hear this blood-critical message of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. This is the only hope that we have. And Paul says here, and I appreciate the fact that he adds this, look at what he says, right? Back in, back in verse 2, with complete patience, spoken appropriately for a man who's about to die. Yes? Complete patience. Because... Because the Word of God does take time, in some sense, to transform even a life, much less a society or a culture. Now, it's true that regeneration and justification are instantaneous. But it's also true that progressive sanctification, progressive sanctification excuse me, takes an entire lifetime. And this is why God's Word, and especially in the parables of Christ, are so filled with those agricultural metaphors. I mean, look at the parables of Jesus. He's almost constantly talking about images drawn from real life of things that take a long time to take effect. In Matthew chapter 13, for instance, we have parables of trees and fruits and seeds and wheat and tares and mustard seeds and thorns and soil and weeds. It's almost as though he's doing that on purpose. 
And yes, it's true. Again, Christ uses other metaphors and analogies as well in his parables. He talks at other times about treasure and pearls and nets and fish. But there seems to be something here about the fact that the Word of God does take time so that the preacher or those churches that stand upon the Word of God have to be imminently patient while the Word takes its effect. And why is that patience necessary? Well, it seems obvious to me, but let's just state the obvious. Because man's heart is stony dry. Uh, It is sometimes described as like a stony place. It is sometimes described as a a thorn briar patch. It is sometimes described as a burden-ridden path. But there are other times where the good seed does find its way to the good soil. And it's, it's not us up to us to discern when those times are going to be. So what do we do? We indiscriminately scatter seed everywhere. We just throw seed everywhere. Like the preacher in the parable. Just throwing it out. Hoping and praying that it does take effect. Because that will bring us then, thirdly, to the alternative to gospel preaching or to word proclamation ministry here. Look at the alternative in verse 3. He says this, and these words should be somewhat sobering to us. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. The phrase, the time is coming, had my mind really churning this week as I was preparing this message because I'm not 100% sure what that means. The time is coming. What does he mean by that? Because I'm scratching my head and I'm thinking to myself, okay, Paul, um, everywhere in the New Testament, we have warnings about false teachers and false teaching. Surely, Paul, you can't be saying that there were no false teachers in your own day. There were. There obviously were. That's why almost every New Testament letter is filled with some kind of warning about false teaching and false teachers. It was already present in the first century church. So why does Paul say that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching as though that's something yet to be fulfilled? Well, as I pondered about this, I came up with four logical possibilities. Let me just throw them out for you. We'll call these A, B, C, and D. What does Paul mean a time is coming? Okay, here's A, possibility locally for Timothy. So Timothy is pastoring the church of Ephesus, which is a church that has a whole letter in the New Testament. Timothy is currently pastoring the church of Ephesus at the time of this writing. We see also in our series on Revelation at Gospel Fellowship that another letter is written to the church in Ephesus, not so glowingly. And so possibly what Paul is saying here is he's warning Timothy himself that there is a time coming in the church of Ephesus over which you are overseeing now as a, as a preaching elder that, um, that it will soon be out of season. And f- in fact, In defense of that interpretation, Paul tells us in chapter 2, verse 17, that there are already two men in this church, Hymenaeus and Philetus by name, whose teaching is spreading like gangrene. So maybe Paul is warning Timothy, this church is about to experience some hard times. Okay, that's A. Here's B. Maybe Paul is talking eschatologically. We're thinking the larger scope of redemption history. Now, I don't know what your eschatology is. We probably have, in a conference like this, all sorts of views about the end times. I myself, I describe myself as an optimistic amillennialist, for those of you who are in the know. Optimistic meaning that I have a very, a very hopeful view 
that the Great Commission is largely going to be successful as the church grows in every nation. Amongst every tribe and every people, there will be a successful fulfillment and culmination to the Abrahamic covenant that the seed will be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. So I'm, I describe myself as an optimistic amillennialist, but notice I stop short of calling myself a postmillennialist. And some of you who are postmillennialists, you may have even a more optimistic view in terms of the transformation of society and culture than I do. All right? So at least for me, it's eschatologically possible here that Paul is talking about some sort of, of larger, later era or time of great difficulty. That's a possibility. Let's just hold that out as option B. Uh, option C is that Paul is talking cyclically or seasonally about these, church, these uh, seasons as they come and go throughout redemption history. We've already learned that there are two seasons, in season and out of season. I would assume, like other seasons, the four seasons that we have here in Pennsylvania, that these things do quite naturally rotate from the one to the next. And so in season gives way to out of season, which later, by God's grace, works back to in season again. Is that a possibility that Paul's talking about just the normal cycles of the way these things go? Or D, let's throw this out there, more than one of those, A, B, and C, could possibly be right at the same time. Okay, so there's the options. You correct me after it's over on, on my eschatology, that's fine. I simply want to observe this, that no matter which of those four possibilities is right, listen, there is always a market for those who crave to hear what their itching ears already want to hear. There's always a market for that. And you know what's worse? Is that there is, just as there are always people who want it, there's always a compromised charlatan who is more than eager to give it to them. Oh, your, your ears look, look red and irritable. Are they itchy? How about some critical race theory for you? Are your ears itchy? I, I have a salve for you. I, I, have, I, have a, I have a potent remedy. Maybe some side B Christianity may help with that. Do you desire to hear what you already want to hear? I've got some prosperity gospel for you. How does that sound to you? And just as there are always people in every time and every season who want to hear what they want to hear, again, remember, there's always a compromised charlatan that can't wait to sell them a product. Which is all the more reason why our gospel preaching ministry is so dire necessary. And that's why Paul uses the word that they wander. They, they wander. Look, for they will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander, verse 4, into myths. The word wander is perfectly selected here because wandering indicates that one is lost and has no idea where he's come from and equally, what? No idea where he's going. And that's what happens when a culture turns itself over to, to, the, to these myths and false teachings. Now finally then, to wind down here, we want to mention and we want to be honest about this. That there is a cost, a real world cost to gospel preaching. And Paul tells Timothy about it. Because look at what he says in verse 5. 
He says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, Paul is not so duplicitous that he would tell Timothy to be ready to endure something that he himself has not been able to endure in suffering. In fact, I've already reminded you that this is Paul writing from his second Roman imprisonment. Not to be confused with his first, Acts 28. Which is not to be confused with his Caesarean imprisonment in Acts 23. Which itself is not to be confused with his Philippian imprisonment in Acts chapter 16. Which is not to be confused with his being thrown out of Damascus over a wall by a basket in Acts chapter 9. Paul is not telling Timothy to be ready to endure something that he himself has not been willing to endure. In fact, flip with me very quickly. Let's do this quick. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to show you again, just by way of reminder, the kinds of suffering that Paul himself is willing to experience for the sake of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11. Twenty-three to twenty-eight. Paul lists it out. Imprisonments, plural. Countless beatings, plural. Often near death. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Verse 25, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Three times shipwrecked. My goodness. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. 26, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. 27, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. 28, and apart from these other things, there's a daily pressure on me for my anxiety for all the churches. Now I've got to just simply ask you, how many shipwrecks would it take you to say, I'm not sure I'm into this gospel preaching thing? Like one time, that's all it takes for me, right? One, one shipwreck, and I'm questioning my career. Probably the reality is that you and I aren't going to be stoned. Probably the reality is that we're not going to be shipwrecked or beaten with rods. At least I hope not. I trust not. But that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a cost if you and your church and your pulpit hold fast to the Word of God. In fact, I think there is a cost coming. And I'm going to give you three costs that I think we're just about to pay right now. Three Ds. You ready for these? First one demonizing question are you ready to be demonized for what you believe now that's not so bad what is that name calling look I got over name calling on the playground in kindergarten sticks and stones can break my bones but words can never hurt me we're over that but the problem is this what we learned so well on the playground in kindergarten we unlearned in middle school at the lunch table because there we learned the controlling and even compulsive power of desiring to be accepted by our peers. 
right? We learned it well in the playground in kindergarten. Unfortunately, we lost it again in the middle school lunch table because there is nothing that most people desire than to be accepted by the people that are important to them. We seek and we crave acceptance. We like to be liked. Everybody in this room, I guarantee you, everybody in this room wants to be appreciated and accepted and thought of as acceptable. But soon, the day is coming, if it's not already here, when you will be charged with being an extremist because of your views. Am I wrong? No, you're going to be hit either now or very shortly coming. And I'm not a prophet or or I'm not predicting these things. I I don't have any any gifts of prognostication. But from from everything I observe in our culture today, uh, I will tell you that it it is a very strong evidence that you will soon be labeled an extremist, and a bigot, and a racist, and a transphobe. And for some people, demonization, that's all it takes. And they will immediately back off every claim. And they will become that compromised charlatan that I told you about earlier. That's all it takes. A little name calling. And they back off. But some are going to go a little further than that. And so they're going to get into the next D. And the next D that we ought to be prepared is coming is deplatforming. You know what that term means, right? To be deplatformed. So we think of that largely in terms of cancel culture or social media, uh, but sometimes it takes place in other ways. We may think of a professor that forfeits his or her tenure for holding a wrong think position, again, reference to 1984 if you didn't get the reference, and people losing jobs. Um, we often think of social media, somebody be, being deplatformed from Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Now, so far, here we are, 2022. The people that have been deplatformed have been the people on the extreme fringes, right? Your Alex, Jones, Alex Joneses, your Milo Yiannopoulos. And whenever the extreme fringe are deplatformed, we think of it as really no big deal because those people are extremists. They have strange views. But every time they're deplatformed, what happens is that the extremes come closer to the center. And that's the problem. And again, you may be saying to yourself, well, I don't care, Pastor Matt. I don't even have a Twitter account. Who cares if Twitter boots me off? Who cares if Facebook boots me off? Who cares if if YouTube won't host my video content? I don't even have a YouTube channel. Well, that may not matter to you right now, but what would happen to you if deplatforming moves into Google's artificial intelligence such that you're searching through your private emails or your personal messages or your private documents? Or Microsoft has a hard look at some of your wrong think in your Word docs or your Excel sheets or your term paper. That's the problem with deplatforming is it doesn't seem like there's an easy solution or a near end. Okay, so, so first there's demonizing and then there's deplatforming. This, the third one that I think is a very real possibility is demonetizing. Okay, and again, you may say to yourself, well, isn't that for people that have large social media accounts? Well, I don't know if you've been paying attention very closely, but PayPal and Visa have already made rather overt suggestions that they are more than willing to cease doing business with those persons who hold, again, what they would call wrong think. And just for the sake of discussion, I want you to ask yourself what your life might possibly be like if you could not receive or make payments. 
the uh, DEI movement, the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement, is a, is, is a dangerous movement in my view. Because does that mean that an entire church might be labeled as one holding extremist positions? How about a denomination? How about the PCA? How about the RPCNA? Is that possible? It's at least theoretically possible. if not imminently dangerous. And so I I simply want to leave you with this. Um, Whatever endurance of suffering we may be called to go through, I can promise you one thing. Christ is worth any cost or any loss that you may experience. He is worth any cost and any loss in this life, any loss, any suffering, even death. And you say, well, how can that be true? It seems like suffering could be quite harsh. Yes. But Christ is so infinitely glorious and infinitely worthy and infinitely beautiful that he would be greater to possess by faith than any loss that this world may demand of you. Because listen, There are 10,000 ways that you can destroy your life. But there is only one way that a life can be redeemed, and that is through Jesus Christ. Church, we have the only answer that exists to the chaos of this world. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, and his resurrection. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do love you and thank you. We ask that you would make us bold. We ask that you would make us faithful. Father, we ask that you would be, make us willing to endure whatever difficulties may come our way. But Father, the last thing that we would ever want is that we might become one of those compromised charlatans who offers a salve or an ointment that does not heal. Lord, we have Christ and we trust in him and we appeal to him for strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Hi everybody, my name is Rob and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.